So let's open up our, our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 27 to 31 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, and these, these uh, handsome gentlemen will, will give one to you. But we're going to be Luke 6, 27 to 31. We're still kind of smack dab in the middle of that sermon that Jesus is delivering that takes us to the end of chapter 6. Um, we're going to keep pressing forward in it. Let me read it, pray, we'll dive in. He says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I'm going to read slow just to let this sink in a little bit. Verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Well, let's pray. God, we We stand amazed, not only at the kind of people you're calling us to be, but the kind of God you've already been for us. There's not a person in this room, Lord, who has not at least at one point stood as your enemy. And yet there's not a person in this room that you didn't offer your life for in love. God, we were asking you to show up this morning. There's a lot of stuff knotted up in our souls. There's a lot of stuff that gets tangled. A lot of bitterness. A lot of anger. A lot of hurt. And we're asking you to come with your love and untangle. And put us back together. And help us to love even those who have so deeply hurt us. So that they would see you. God, I need your help in this and we uh, need... As we'll see here, even in just a moment, we need ears to hear. Jesus, would you come with your spirit and do that as we begin? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, okay, so last week, we looked in more detail at the blessings and woes that Jesus lays out for us in verses 20 to 26. And that was hard enough. That, uh, If you recall, I think I opened up my message last week saying, man, being a disciple of Jesus is crazy. It just sounds, it just sounds insane. 
the things he blesses, we would naturally want to curse. And the things he kind of curses or warns us against, we would naturally call blessings. It sounds crazy. Well, as we press on in this sermon this morning, and we move now into verses 27 to 31, I'm going to say being a disciple of Jesus sounds downright impossible. It just sounds like there's no one on the planet who wants to live or can live this way. I wonder if you felt that even as we were reading it. I mean, love your enemies, he says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And he he just keeps going and he just keeps kind of adding on things that sound even more impossible. Things that cut against the grain of everything we are by nature. You know, at the the end of kind of reading some of this stuff, you just got to think, man, who is going to, when Jesus is done delivering this sermon, who's going to like raise their hand and say, yes, I want to sign up for this. I want to sign up for, for being abused, ridiculed, hated, taken advantage of, struck. And then, and, then, and then loving and opening myself up to the possibility of all that happening to me again. Who's going to sign up for this kind of lifestyle? And when we have a whole array of responses to abuse, some of us run away in fear. Some of us nurse bitterness through the night, just seething. Some of us dissolve into depression because of what people have done. Some of us stay up late planning our our revenge and how we're going to get back at those who got the upper hand on us. Man, who is up late at night thinking about, man, how can I bless the people that hurt me? How can I, how can I overwhelm them with love? I I was thinking, there's whole genres in the movie industry devoted to vengeance. Have you noticed that? I mean, you get into these stories like, oh yeah, this is a vengeance flick. I've seen this a thousand times. Something happens to the main character, he's, he's angry, he's down, but he's not going to let him stop. So the whole rest of the story is him just taking it, you know, and going crazy. It's like, we love that sort of thing. That sort of thing, you know, sells at the, the box office. But who's up at night planning, doing, who wants to do what Jesus is saying here? Responding with love, kindness, and blessing, even to our enemies. This sounds crazy. Even more than that, it sounds impossible. And if you've been face-to-face with this kind of situation, it feels impossible. It feels unfair that Jesus would call us to do this sort of a thing. This is precisely why I think Jesus opens up this section of his sermon here with a little phrase we probably just read right by, but I'm not going to let you do that. He opens this section up in verse 27 there by saying, but I say to you who hear. 
But I say to you who hear. Now, you might just go, well, what does that, that doesn't mean anything. Well, that's kind of shorthand for what he says elsewhere in the gospel, like Luke 8, 8, Luke 14, 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a weird phrase. And a lot of times we go, wait a minute, everybody you're talking to has ears to hear. What are you trying to get at, Jesus, when you say, hey, if you hear me, hear me. (laughs) You got ears out there or not? Words like these are meant to draw our attention to the fact that there is hearing that goes on beneath hearing. That there is hearing with the ears of our body, and then there's hearing with the ears of our heart. And there's a difference, and we've experienced this. I imagine that you have. There are times where uh, probably the Word of God just kind of goes in one ear and right out the other. You have ears to hear, but you did not hear. And I sat for years, uh, you know, in church or whatever, hearing this sort of thing, and never did it move me. And yet, then there comes a day where maybe that same word you've heard a thousand times, the gospel or something God would want to speak to you, you hear it again, but this time it's like a lightning bolt just strikes your heart. And the Spirit of God gives you ears to hear there. And you're just on your face. It's the same thing. You've heard it before. Why are you on your face now? Well, you have ears to hear. God moves upon a people and helps them discern, helps them to, to, to hear his voice. In the midst of what would otherwise seem foolish or weak or insignificant. People need this sort of divine intervention, you could say, at a most fundamental level. By nature, fallen human beings now are deaf to the things of God. We um, can hear Bible study after Bible study, sermon after sermon, evangelistic presentation after evangelistic presentation. I'm telling you, a choir of angels could come down, set up camp on this stage, and start singing the praises of, of God and the cross of Christ. And if God doesn't give us ears to hear, all that we would hear is nothing. Nothing. No glory there. There's nothing moving us there. Until he does for us what he did for Lydia. You remember this? Acts 16, 14. Paul is talking to this woman and we read this. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, the Lord gave her ears to hear so that the words that Paul was saying seemed intriguing, seemed authentic, seemed like the very words of God himself to her.
We especially need this sort of thing if we're ever to hear and do what Christ is calling us to now in our text, which is why he opens with that sort of phrase. No one's going to think this is, is okay. No one's going to think this is possible. No one's going to think this is a wise way of living. Unless the Spirit of God opens our hearts, opens our eyes, we, we're not going to see any, any, any wisdom in it. We're not going to understand it. And unless the Spirit of God causes us to be born again from above, we're not going to be able to rise up to this sort of thing. Loving our enemies. It's a heavenly task, and you don't get there by clawing up from the ground. You get there by being born again from above. Only God can move this sort of love in a people. So we begin our exposition, therefore, this morning with our hands open. I mean, I'm aware every week of the impossibility of my call. I'm aware every week that unless God opens ears, opens eyes, opens hearts, Nothing's going to happen. We start here to say, God, come, Holy Spirit, come. You got enemies? You got people that you are nursing bitterness towards? You got people that have abused you in horrible ways? God would never, never undermine or devalue the abuse. He will get justice. He will. But he's calling you to trust him with that and bless And if you're going to do that, you're going to need the Spirit of Christ to fall afresh here today. Pray for that with me. Now, let me first quickly outline this text for you um, so that you can kind of see, I think, the logic of it. And then I'll I'll, I'll lay out where I'm going to go in this message. Um, First, uh, there in the first part of verse 27... What I think he's doing is laying down the one master principle in play here, and that is love your enemies. I think that's the one master principle, and everything else is going to key off of this. Everything else in our text is going to key off of love your enemies. And when we move into the second part of verse 27 and into verse 28, I think he's fleshing out this master principle uh, into three basic expressions. And you see it there. Do good to those who hate you. Number one, bless those who curse you. Number two, pray for those who abuse you. Number three, in other words, we could say that he kind of fleshes this one master principle into essentially two basic ideas, loving your enemy, both in deed, doing good things, and in word, blessing them, words to them, perhaps, and, and, and praying for them, words to God. But we are, we are loving our enemy in deed and in word. And then you move into verses 29 through 30, which is actually what I'm going to spend... Uh, most time on this morning. And Jesus fleshes this out even further, I think, by providing four particular illustrations. This is where things get especially crazy. He says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, you've got to turn and offer them the other. Then he says, if someone steals your coat, we'll throw in your shirt as well. I mean, just let people, let, let people just take everything so that you're just fully exposed. And there's nothing there for you to call your own anymore, except for perhaps your shame. And he says, if someone begs from you, always give. And he says, if someone takes from you, never demand it back. 
I don't care if they stole from you. I don't care if you loaned it. Never demand it back. So one master principle, uh, three basic expressions, now four illustrations. If I were to try to summarize these illustrations or summarize this even further, what I'm thinking he's essentially saying is, listen, there's this one master principle of love for enemies. It's going to be expressed in, in, in deed and in word. And that's going to look like laying down both your person, in other words, your, your body, your, your reputation, and your possessions, your goods and your money. It's just kind of working out for us, keying off of this idea, what is love for enemies going to look like? It's this kind of love that he's calling us to. If you want to be his disciple, this is kind of your constitution. This is what you live by. And then finally there in verse 31, he just summarizes all of this again with the golden rule. You know, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, let me give you a sense of where we're going this morning. After Easter, when we get back from that, uh, I'm going to be dealing a little bit more fully with with, uh, this idea of loving our enemies in in a positive sense what it means, and we're going to take it on into the verses that follow. There's a section that kind of relates to this. Um, but for this morning, I have really a, just a simple agenda, and it, it does kind of emerge from these four particular expressions I just identified, these four crazy scenarios it gives us, and kind of what he tells us to do here that just sounds absolutely uh, impossible. Uh, I want to understand them. That's my goal this morning. I want to understand them. I want to understand what he means when he says, man, turn the other cheek. He says, yeah, let them have your, let them have your coat. Let them have your shirt. Let them take from you. Give to everyone. I want to know, what does he mean there? What's going on there? These things are searching. These things are challenging. These things are also confusing. We can misunderstand. We can misapply Jesus at this point. In fact, My concern is actually for those of you who are most eager to obey Jesus, which is a wonderful thing, but I think these verses can confuse us. I want to obey him. This is what he says. Okay, what do you want? You want this? Sure. You want that? Okay, yes. Okay, you want... We're trying to figure out, how do I obey what he said? What does he mean here? Is there anything underneath this text that I need to grab a hold of to understand it? Because it might sound nice and and, and tidy in a little Bible study on Sunday, but when you get out into Monday and you're faced with applying this stuff into your your daily life and the details of it, you're going to find that it gets all tangled up and you don't quite know how to walk this out. For example, when your boss throws you under the bus at the board meeting, As a Christian, is Jesus saying, you better not speak up for yourself. You're a doormat till the day you die. Legitimate questions. Turn the other cheek. What does that mean in the boardroom when you're being humiliated or whatever it is? Or... God forbid any of you ever deal with this or have dealt with this, but if your husband ever gets physically abusive, 
as a Christian, is Jesus saying that you can't call the cops. That wouldn't be turning the other cheek. Don't you call the cops, you'd be denying your Lord. Is that what he's saying? Or when you're walking downtown and a homeless man holds out his hand asking for change. As a Christian, is Jesus saying, you better not say no. Give to everyone who begs of you. You better not say no. Does no, is no a word that Christians can even have in their vocabulary? Well, last one I might give you. Can Christians lock their doors? If I'm supposed to let people take, not worry about my stuff. Is Jesus saying, don't lock your doors at night? I mean, aren't I keeping the guys out? It's my stuff. So Christ's words here hit reality right away. They will, at least, right when you walk out these doors, if not before. And, and, and I want you to know how to make sense. And I want you to know how to live this out. I want you to know why. Why we understand this the way we do. Why we do the things we do. And what he's getting at underneath this. So I think one of the best ways, and this, is, this will essentially serve as the headings for this morning. One of the best ways to come at this will be to first look at what Jesus doesn't mean here. Second, we're going to look at, uh, kind of wrap back around and, and, and get a better sense of what he does mean. And then finally, uh, I'll, I'll bring things to a close by asking, well, what does all this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? So first, what Jesus doesn't mean. Um, one of the best ways to deal with difficult texts, I think, is to let Scripture interpret scripture uh, meaning when you're not sure or in any text that you're dealing with one of the best ways to to come out the right interpretation is to see it in light of the the, the rest of scripture a, a, a key you know one of the ways that you can be sure you're cooking up a heresy is to take one text out of context isolate it absolutize it and make a doctrine for everybody to follow that's Kind of the the recipe for for heresy. If you don't want that, then you read the text in light of the rest of Scripture. You let that shed light on this one so you can get a complete and more balanced perspective on it. So in my initial reading of these four illustrations there in Luke 6, uh, it's making me feel like I ought never to speak up for myself. Like I ought never to call the cops or say no or lock my doors or whatever. That's kind of the initial interpretation I have. And people do this. You know, Christian pacifism, other things, trace their roots to texts like these. No, you can't go to war. Look at what he says. No, you can't protect yourself. Look at what he says. No, you can't say no or whatever it is. Look at what he says. But is this the sort of thing that Jesus is after here? And I think the answer is... You're not going to like me at first. I think the answer is yes and no. Hopefully you'll know what I mean by the time we get to the end. If all you have is yes as your answer on this point, then when we consider this text in light of the rest of Scripture, you're going to have to face a a massive problem. 
And that is this. Jesus himself is not always going to do what it seems he's here commanding. What are you going to do with that? So let me take a few minutes to show you what I mean here. Concerning Christ's person, okay, his, his, his body, his reputation, character, whatever, and this whole concept of turning the other cheek or letting people abuse you, uh, we already have seen in Luke's gospel itself one glaring contradiction. I don't know if you remember the uh, sermon in Luke 4 where he delivers it to the, his, the hometown crowd and the synagogue there in, Naz, in, in Nazareth. And you'd think they'd all be excited and, 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 and raising up to just praise God because he's announcing the Jubilee. But instead, they rise up in rage against him. They're furious with what he has to say because he's talking about inclusion of Gentiles and other scandalous stuff that, that seems to diminish their self-worth. And we read this in Luke 4, 28 through 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, now, Jesus, that doesn't sound like turning the other cheek. There are people here who want to strike you. It sounds like you're saying, I got to get the heck out of here. And I'm God, so I can do it with the snap of my fingers. I don't know how he just slips through. But he will do this numerous times throughout his ministry. Just, he's gone. Everybody wants to kill him. Where'd he go? What's that? And how does that? Relate to what he's saying back in our text in Luke 6. Or concerning Christ's possessions and this idea of giving to any who ask. Uh, again, we've actually already seen him say no, even within Luke's gospel itself. We've already seen him say no. I, I wonder if you remember, uh, again, back in Luke 4, Jesus was ministering. He, he goes on from Nazareth to Capernaum, and he gets kind of the opposite uh, response. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's healing all these people, and they love it. I mean, they love it so much that they don't want him to go. We read this in verses 42 to 43 of Luke 4. The people sought him came to him and would have kept him from leaving them but he said to them i must preach the good news of the kingdom of god to other towns as well for i was sent for this purpose in other words he looks at these people begging him to stay and he says no sorry it's not going to happen I thought you said, give to everyone who asks. Well, what's that? How do we understand that? Or you might consider John 6. You remember after Jesus feeds the 5,000? I mean, this passage is very illuminating for how I ought to handle ministry, um, especially in our consumer-driven society. But in John 6, he's just fed the 5,000. And now, the, you know, the, the, he broke the bread and did all that thing. 
And now they're all clamoring after him. They're all looking for, where's Jesus? We got to get more of that bread. I'm telling you, it was good. It was as fresh as it could be. We were full, but now we're empty. We need some more. And Jesus kind of calls them out on this. In John 6, verses 26 to 27, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then he says these crazy words, these hard words that he knows only those with ears to hear will hear and the rest will turn away. He says, man, if you don't, if you want, if you want the real kind of bread that I have to give, you got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're going, this is cannibalism. This guy's crazy. We're out of here. Essentially, Jesus is, is, is looking at these people, begging him for bread and saying, listen, if all you want is bread for your bellies and you're not interested in the bread of life, no, it's not going to help you for me to do that right now. I'm giving away some of where I'm going later. So, given just even a few examples, and there are plenty more, what are we to make of all this? How do we bring together the teaching of Jesus in our text with these other examples from his life where he seems to do otherwise? How are we supposed to understand, you know, turn the other cheek to those who abuse you, give to everyone who asks of you, and yet see that in light of the rest of Scripture where Jesus doesn't always do that, literally? How do we understand this? Certainly, we know that Jesus is not a hypocrite. Certainly, we know that what we're witnessing here isn't kind of what, you know, I don't know if your parents ever said that to you, this to you, but, you know, do as I say, not as I do. You ever get that one? He's not doing that here. He's not saying, guys, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard than I even hold myself. You got to give, but listen, I'm going to hold back. No. In fact, everything Jesus teaches in Luke 6, we must emphatically declare, and we will soon clearly see, he certainly will do, literally, and more. So why slip away earlier when the Jews are seeking to kill him in that synagogue in Nazareth? Why say no to those believers in Capernaum? Why withhold bread from the crowd in John 6? It's not that he's reluctant to love his enemies and and finally comes around to the idea at the end of his life. It's not like by the time he gets to the, you know, time for the cross, finally the father has just kind of beaten his, his ego down and he's ready to lay his life down. No. He's been loving these people, his enemies, all along. And that's why he came. That's why he took on flesh. That's why he left the Father and came. He's been loving his enemies through it all. It's just that love for enemies, this master principle that guides our Savior's life, takes on different forms, different expressions, with different people at different times. Let me try to explain this for you. Love 
is always the master principle of our Savior's life. But as the Father guides him, it's going to look a little different from time to time. So when he slips away from violent men or turns away from those begging him to stay, let's be clear. It's not because he's concerned for his life at the expense of theirs. Like, I got to save my skin. This life is all I got. I got to slip away. And when he says no there in, in Capernaum, it's not because, hey, it's my agenda. My day planner does not involve you or staying here, so I'm out of here. It's my agenda over yours, thank you. It's not self-regard. It's not self-centeredness. It's actually love for them. Jesus would say as much in, in Luke 4.43. Did you catch his logic? I can't stay here in Capernaum, you guys, because I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. So he slips away in Nazareth and he pulls away in Capernaum because he's got to spread the gospel to others. Not because he's so concerned about his life that he's willing to do anything to save it. But because he, he, he's concerned about the other towns hearing about the kingdom and the jubilee as well. And the redemption that he's going to work. And he's surrendered to the father and said, okay. Listen, the Father sent me to go here and here and there. So I'm going to do that. And I'm going to slip away. Or I'm going to say no, whatever it is. When he withholds bread from the crowds, it's in John 6. It's not because he's trying to hoard up stuff for himself. As if he needs, you know, a storehouse of bread. I mean, the guy, he, he says it himself. He's thoroughly satisfied. My, my, my bread is to do the will of my father. That's the stuff that feeds me in here. I don't need physical bread. He's not withholding out of self-concern as if he needs it. He's withholding out of love because he's saying, man, if I continue to give for your physical appetites, you'll stay dead to the spiritual appetites underneath. I want you to awaken there to the hunger underneath. And so withholding sometimes helps people awaken. And so it's in love for them that he withholds. So it turns out that upon closer examination, even his acts of resistance are acts of great love. There's not self-preservation, self-defense, self-regard going on here, but love for his father, his neighbor, and even his enemy. Now, this is why, I mean, it's Palm Sunday, right? Well, this is why when Palm Sunday arrives in John 12, and everything kind of shifts, God the Father comes to his son and, and, and says essentially, listen, now love for your enemies is going to look like the cross. Luke 6 is going to start getting literal, son. It's going to start coming into the physical in powerful ways. And let me ask you, does Jesus hesitate? Does he push back on the Father? I say, no, 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 I don't want to love my enemies. Not in that way. 
We know Gethsemane, but I wonder if you're familiar with John 12, verse 27 and 28. This is right there, right as he's entering Jerusalem, right on Palm Sunday, as he's coming to the last week of his life. And the father's saying, the time is now to lay it down in full. He says this, now is my soul troubled. Does this hurt? Yes, it does. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In other words, he says, what I'm about to do here in Jerusalem is why I came in the first place. Am I about to say, Father, stop it now? No. Father, glorify your name. My life has always been in your hands. My love has always been for my enemies. Now you're calling me to lay it down in full. And Luke 6, from this point on, starts to get painfully literal. He would be struck on the cheek. And he would turn and offer the other. John, 12, John 18, 22, Matthew 26, 67. The soldiers would rip off his garments from him. And, and John actually goes out of his way to say, and they also took his tunic. The kind of the shirt that would be closest to their, their skin. Jesus let him take the outer garment and the inner garment. And he let him, you know, put him up on a cross, all but naked, exposed and shamed before the eyes of all. I mean, this stuff is literal for him now. And he would give for unworthy sinners the precious blood that flowed through his veins. We didn't even ask for it. Although I suppose if you recall, the crowd did. Let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. You don't even know what that means, but I give to everyone who asks my blood for sinners like you. And he would let his enemies take everything from him, even his very life. But in it all, he would do good. He would bless. He would pray. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. So everything, everything the Savior would do would walk this text out in Luke 6 literally. And he would do it all in love for his enemies. The master principle reaches its fullest final form there on the cross. Love for enemies, love for you and I. I, I wonder if you've ever had that moment kind of strike you where you realize that you are the enemy. I mean, we, we live so much of our lives thinking that we're pretty good. You know, we're all right. We're not as, we're not, it's not like we're Judas or something. It's not like we're these guys, you know, around the cross and nailing him. Pretty good. If I was there, I'd be defending him. Really? Where were the disciples? Where were the apostles? Strike the shepherd and every sheep scatters. 
of them. And so there comes a moment where we realize, man, I'm the enemy there. I'm the enemy, and he's loving even me on that cross. I mean, there is a line from a modern hymn that always brings me to tears, almost without fail. Have you heard this? Behold the man upon the cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I mean, just puts you there and humbles you and makes you realize I'm the enemy. (laughs) I'm the one striking him on the face. I'm the one stripping him down and casting lots for his clothes. I'm the one scoffing and mocking and laughing like he's a joke. I'm the one crucifying him. It's me. It's you. We are the enemies. That he loves. (laughs) It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I mean, we think it would be a horrible day when we realize we're enemies, but when we realize we're enemies in the light of the cross, it's the most amazing day ever. Because you come to know a love that, that that is impossible. You come to know a love that could only come down from heaven. Its author could only be God. Blows our minds. This is how we start to make our way towards the impossible lifestyle of Luke 6. This is why after Jesus is all done, there will be people signing up to follow him into this kind of life. Because they've known this kind of love. Because they've been so amazed that he would orient his whole life towards those that hated him. And laying it down for them. Not withholding a thing from us. Let himself just be struck and killed. And then reach towards us with that same nail pierced hand. What kind of a God does that? What kind of a... It's insane. And so we've tasted this love. And now we go, man, I want my enemies to taste this kind of love. I want them to know this God who I have come to know. Or as Paul would say better, who has come to know me. So does Jesus mean us to take these four illustrations in Luke 6, literally? Yes, And no, no love for our enemies will not always take on these forms, literally. But yes, we must always be willing to lay down our lives literally for them. It's never okay to be nursing vengeance or to cut people off out of self-preservation. God preserves us. God protects us. And we can move forward in love, trusting him. No, these four illustrations are not to be interpreted as unflinching, inflexible commands that must be observed literally at every point. But yes, they do show us the extent and the scope to which we must be willing to sacrifice literally should love and the Spirit of God lead us. 
So if and when we speak up at that board meeting, or we call the police, or we say no, someone who begs, it's no longer out of this like uh, this this compelling driving love for self. My, you know, person and my possessions. How dare he speak to me like that in the meeting? I gotta defend myself. I will not be put to shame. That's not the kind of heart we speak from. You might say something, but but it's it's in love for God, for neighbor, and even for your enemy. And you might say no, but it's the master principle of love that guides us. Not concerned for self. We, I said it last week, we are unbelievably free, you guys, because of what Jesus has done. I mean, when he, when he comes to us in that way and commits himself to us in that way, we are taken care of. He's going to take care of our person and our possessions, of our bodies and our stuff. And what that means is we get to be radically free in in letting go of these things. We get to live these unbelievably unattached lives because we're attached to Christ. And we get to let them defame us. Let them hit us. And as we love them, let them see our Savior. Three things I'll leave us with, and don't worry, it's very quick that I think are required if we are to fulfill what Jesus is calling us to here. Three things that we need to do, I think, if we are to fulfill this kind of love for enemy. First, and it's kind of referencing where I began, we need to be born again. That's a critical point. You are not going to muscle your way through this, brothers and sisters. The only way to get this kind of love in you is to let he who is love come and live in you. Does that make sense? His spirit inside us, born again from above, and we can start living on earth. The impossible. The impossible. And what's amazing about that is is he is committed. He's implanted his spirit in you. He's committed to helping you walk this out. Jesus knows that this is hard. Jesus knows that this is brutal. He's got the scars to prove it. But he's committed to helping in those dark nights. You turn from what the enemy would have you grab a hold of, bitterness, vengeance. Soften your heart and turn towards love and even pray for those who have so hurt you. We need to be born again. Second, we need to be surrendered. We need to be surrendered. It's my understanding that we dismantle the whole engine of the Christian life when we refuse to be crucified with Christ. In many ways, the whole Christian life begins with what? Take up your cross and follow me. It begins with a cross, not just on his back, but my back. Meaning we are living sacrifices. We have, we have made that exchange. In our hearts, we have settled the issue. Take the world, but give me Jesus. 
So we are surrendered. We are, we are an altered people, meaning we are on the altar. Our life is laid down. My person, my possessions in the Father's hands so that he can tell me what love looks like in a given moment. I'm ready for Luke 6 to get literal. I'm not just always hiding behind metaphorical uses of that text. I'm ready for the strike on the cheek and to turn it if the time, if my hour has come. And he calls me to do it. Paul, at the end of his ministry, says as much. I wonder if you remember that. I, unfortunately, I don't remember the text fully, but he's at the end of his ministry, he says, man, Paul, by the way, would run away throughout his ministry as well. They like would lower him in baskets and he would escape the hands of people who wanted to kill him. But then finally, near the end, he goes, you know what? Spirit's telling me my time's come and my life's going to be laid out. It's going to be poured out like an offering. He's just going to walk in this. Luke 6 is going to get literal. This leads to the last thing I think we need. We need to be born again. We need to be surrendered and we need to be listening. We need to be listening for the Father's voice. Because Luke 6 isn't literal and it's not black and white rule. We just follow, oh, let me read the lines and okay, follow the directions. Because it's kind of, we've got to discern in the moment what God is calling us to do. What love for enemies looks like here. We need to be listening to him. Always in conversation as we live in the gray scale. Does it look like letting him take my pocketbook and in fact, I'll throw in the keys to my car? Or does it look like calling the cops because that brother's going to go and he's going to do whatever? Or he's going to endanger someone else? Both ways could be from the heart of love. Only God can direct us. We need to be born again. We need to be surrendered. We need to be listening. So that like Jesus, when Palm Sunday rolls around, it's not Luke 4 anymore. It's slipping away. It's Luke 19 and Palm Sunday and Gethsemane. And now he surrenders himself, though he could slip away. Because his hour had come and his father said, let's go. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness to us. And loving us, even us, your enemies. Oh, help on otherwise earthly people ascend to heavenly things, God. I pray that if there's hatred, if there's bitterness, if there's anger, if there's resentment in this room, the spirit of Christ and his love as it's poured out would dissolve those things. And you would help us to walk like you walked. What should we say, Father? Save us from this hour? No. For this purpose, we came to this hour. Father, glorify your name through us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.